Hello and welcome to Adipod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. I'm your host, Emilio Garcia. Today, we talk to Ron Manners, author of the new book, The Lonely Libertarian, about his book, as well as his general philosophy. The Australian Taxpayers Alliance will be hosting Ron for an event announcing the book. You can find out more about this event by sticking around after the episode. Please enjoy. Here we are once again at the Australian Taxpayers Alliance office. I'm here with the Director of Policy, Satya. What's your last name? How do you pronounce it? Marar. Marar. It's like two syllables. Yes. And we're also joined via Skype by Ron Manners. Uh, Ron Manners has released five books already. He's a prominent libertarian. And we're excited to talk to him about his new book. So, Ron, first of all, thank you so much for being with us. And I suppose the first question I have to ask is, uh, wh- why are you so lonely? Why, uh, why the loneliness, Ron? Well, I'll tell you, fellas, uh, the, the, the concept of the book came out of the publisher, Anthony Capello, who approached me about a year ago, or less than a year ago, and said, Ron, I want you to do another book, but a book about yourself. And I, I, I laughed. I said, I've already done that. It's called Heroic Misadventures. And uh, that documented uh, several uh, of my spectacular, uh, heroic uh, um, uh, business failures. And uh, it was a complete success, a complete sellout. And I couldn't believe you could actually sell sell out a book uh, discussing your failures. And I said, so I've done that, Anthony. Why would I want to do it again? He said, no, you were very clever. That book was nothing about you at all. It was just about the interesting people that you have been travelling with over the last 50 very exciting years. He said, this time I want you to just, I want you to write about yourself. I want you to include some of your successes. You can talk about the people that you travelled with, the people that helped you, particularly talk about the advice that you got and from who and what what that advice how that advice has helped you in your very interesting career. So I said, right, let's do that. And then I started writing it, and then I realised that I have a major concern about Australia at the moment, and it is that anyone who does any research or thinks things through and figures things out for themselves and then expresses an opinion on, mm. on the outcome that they've come to, they've got a fair chance of feeling extremely lonely because oh, yeah. in, this, in this hyper-politically correct environment that we've mm. had thrust upon us, opinions, informed opinions from people is just not welcomed. Mm. No one is welcome now to question what's regarded as the political correct point of view, which is dictated really by mob rule. You really, unless you think like the mob and you stick with the mob psychology, 
individual is almost being stamped out. And then I look back and over the years, I see a lot of people who've made some very, very informed commentary and subsequently been proved right at the yep. time they made their comments, it, it alarmed people and they they entered into a, a periods of intense loneliness. Wow. I can even mention Australia's greatest living historian, uh, Professor Geoffrey Blaney, who mm -hmm. way back in the early 70s made some comments about Australia needing to learn from several countries around the world that had entered into some very indiscriminate immigration policies and the ah. problems that they were confronted with. And he just, he just suggested we should learn from these people. Well, the <laughs> screen went up and he was banned from appearing on university campuses for so many years. How lonely would have that intellectual giant felt as Simply for expressing an opinion, yeah. So that was happening even back in the 1970s? Because it seems like a very <laughs> modern phenomenon. You can't criticize immigration at all. Well, that's 1980s. That was the 1980s. Mm. Uh, but we we see people questioning if they stand up against a, a, a trade union or if a lecturer stands up against uh, the university uh, um, uh, committees. Uh, you see what's happened to Professor Peter Ridd recently. Mm -hmm. He yep. just questioned the technical standards of some of the research that we're doing. What did they do? They sacked him. They wiped out a guy's remarkable academic career. And he he got legal advice and he won. And yeah. But at what cost? And uh, and not that the university isn't fighting uh, fighting the the decision with with uh, all, all their might, um, but you know what I find really but, interesting but we, before we uh, we all know that a lot of this research is defective and it's just it's just directed at more yeah. and more government grants. So mm. this this that's the theme of that's the sort of loneliness that I'm thinking of. Right, and university students and they are really not encouraged to ask questions at the universities. Sometimes they discourage it themselves, actually. That's but, what the um, university is for. It's yeah. questioning conventional wisdom and coming up with better answers. The students are not encouraged to question the lecturers. That's right. And so, Ron, I want to I wanna ask you a little bit, um, before we start talking kind of about the modern-day uh, environment, since you do discuss, this is kind of an uh, autobiographical uh, book. I want to, I want to kind of get into some of the ideas that you were putting forth that made you feel so lonely. Some of the ideas that you think maybe were just so outside the norm at the moment that people kind of felt that was just not something that could be expressed. Oh, I think this started at, at age sixteen when I got, I uh, I became interested in economics when I was sixteen. A long mm. story, but. Uh, I got some material from the Foundation for Economic Education, and I, I liked it, and I got involved with uh, with them. They were one of the very early think tanks, and I was reading their material. Later then, probably when I was about 19, I became the editor of the Kalgoorlie School of Mines magazine, and I started using some of this uh, individual responsibility uh, uh, type philosophy in some of my articles and I suggested that 
it was possible to be successful by becoming independent and uh, and self-reliant and mm. and learning to stand up for yourself rather than uh, rather than uh, uh, um, expect results to be to be except <laughs> rather mm. than expect your life to be sort of uh, successful because of government influ influence or trade union influence, and Calgary was a very highly unionised town at that time. And boy, did I did I get some flack? I nearly got ran out of run out of town by suggesting that people could be successful under their own steam rather yeah. than using uh, high pressure union type negotiations, and mm -hmm. I. Uh, I wondered, I said, what have I done wrong? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that, I, I've been in the learning process ever since to sort of try to reinforce, to, to be able to defend my position, saying that only, only we have the responsibility for our lives and we must make those decisions and we must make, take responsible. We must be responsible for those decisions we make. That's, that shouldn't be... That shouldn't be a revolutionary thought, but mm. my gosh, it works. <laughs> well, yeah. we do live in the age of participation trophies and, uh, yes. you know, telling kids that their feelings must constantly be validated. I mean, no <laughs> wonder they come out of school uh, being overgrown children, just emotionally stunted. And <laughs> back in the day, you know, you'd be 18 years old, you'd already have a family ready to go and you'd be meant to take care of them. You wouldn't have the choice but to mm. rely on yourself. You know, now yeah. things have changed. The schools are something of a problem. I know in the industry that I've been involved with for most of my life, the mining industry, we've, we're having trouble recruiting students for, for instance, the Kalgoorlie School of Mines. They've got wonderful facilities, accommodation, five-star accommodation facilities, but they're not getting uh, enrolments. There's no mystery about this to me because the primary schools and the secondary schools, uh, they're training the kids what a rotten, filthy, dirty industry the mining industry is. <laughs> oh, man. And, 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 and the, those kids come back and they say to their parents who are working in the mining industry, how could you be part of a mining industry? It's <laughs> dreadful. Now, with that brainwashing that's going on at schools, no wonder they don't go mm. on enrolled in what is in fact the most creative industry and the most creative profession in the world. The mm. mining industry is where you go out into a, the outback of Australia where there's absolutely nothing and you combine science with capital and human uh, um, ingenuity and you lay, put layer upon layer of scientific information leading you to a, a following your theories and you drill a hole if you make a discovery. What you've created <laughs> of that is is a township, an industry, employment, civilization, and you've created an environment in which develops the wealth and the prosperity of our nation. And mm -hmm. this industry is being denigrated unnecessarily. I think there should be a revolt from the from the parents who should take their students out of schools that are bad-mouthing our very essence of an industry. Can I just say, I mean, how refreshing it is to hear that being put in such romantic terms, and all of it is completely true. 
Uh, I feel like on television nowadays, besides the very emotive anti-mining rhetoric from all these activists, whenever it's, it seems that whenever they have someone put on to defend the mining industry, it's almost uh, always someone who is, you know, some corporate lobbyist or someone who, uh, you know, they, they just they aren't able to put it in those terms because they don't seem to believe that themselves. You know, <laughs> it comes out all they can say is, oh, look, we create jobs and we create growth. And that doesn't really resonate with people. Um, mm. You know, and absolutely, I think it's time for us to embrace you know, the fact that this industry has helped to build this country. Right. And we shouldn't be apologetic about it at all. So, and if I may jump in here before we, we continue on, I, it's a really interesting area, especially as it relates to, to libertarianism and libertarian thought. Mining is perceived by many, and perhaps to a degree rightly so, as maybe not the safest industry, and it does carry some risks, which is partially why, uh, why it's well paid. And the reason that I say that this is interesting as it relates to, to libertarianism is because we have different types of libertarians. We have more uh, pure libertarians and libertarians that are a little bit closer and uh, happier to, to flirt with regulation. So as it relates to the mining industry, how could we how could we see the libertarian thought come in here? Are there certain things that the government should be involved in regulating for the safety of the of the workers and the environment? Or are we going to uh, just trust that industry, private industry, is intelligent enough to regulate itself and doesn't want to deal with the fallout of some kind of uh, catastrophe? I yeah, I think there's a terrible assumption that the uh, and it's not just the mining industry. There's an assumption that industry generally is very careless about the safety and welfare of 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 its workforce. Uh, it's exactly the opposite. Good mm -hmm. people are so scarce, and, and the the teamwork in a in a mining company is uh, is akin to a sporting team where you. You each need each other so much. You value each other as people. Mm. Uh, 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 I think rather than running around with a big stick saying, thou shalt not kill your workforce, <laughs> it, 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 they sh the, the regulators should become part of encouraging the collegiate atmosphere within, if you dig deep into some of the very successful mining companies, and I'm not really at this stage talking about the really big mining companies that uh, almost just earth movers rather than scientists mm. in the creative process, but if, uh, if, if they can accept that the industry is determined to care for their people and uh, and find ways of working with them and learning from the 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 techniques of safety, the safety uh, processes within the mining industry, as you say, it's it's has been a dangerous industry and has developed into a, one of the very safest industries mm. at the moment, and that's that's come from a culture that's been developed by the mining industry itself, not by the regulators. Regulators I, I do want to learn so much from the industry itself and and by encouraging in the role of a coach rather than the in the, the in the role of a policeman running around with a big stick yep um I did want to touch upon something so um you did mention having your troubles with the unions and you know growing up in a very unionized town having the free market philosophy 
Um, in your experience as a, as a, you know, as the head of a mining company, um, could you tell us maybe a little bit about some of the dealings and clashes that you perhaps had with the unions and with the worker, you know, interest groups, uh, and how you sort of dealt with that? Now, I know you probably elucidate on this in your book, which unfortunately I haven't had the chance to read because uh, we're waiting on the copies to arrive at the office. Uh, but could you tell us a little bit about that? I, I've really not had uh, much uh, much problem with the unions, as you it might assume that I may have had, because uh, I, I, I've known the union bosses and I've respected them and I think they've respected my position, but I, I did have an, have an interesting uh, case where we, uh, we, were, we were taken to court. It probably goes back to the days, the um, early 90s, I think, when the compulsory superannuation was brought in and um, there was a default scheme where the the uh, the compulsory uh, uh, superannuation levies that uh, were retained from uh, various wages and salaries uh, were uh, were being manipulated by the unions so that they would they would be lodged into union operated superannuation funds. Mm -hmm. Well, I felt there were a range of other superannuation funds, and I had our um, accounting people do a spreadsheet summary of how they ranked. And the union at that stage, as may not be true, at that stage the union, the fees that they were charging were nothing short of rapacious. Ah. Mm -hmm. They felt that they had a monopoly because there was a default clause where the, the funds would be deposited in the union, uh, superannuation funds. So I I went to, was happy to go to the industrial court to uh, to say that we we wouldn't go to the worst we wouldn't uh, uh, in the interests of our staff and workforce mm. we wouldn't uh, lodge the funds in the worst possible insurance or superannuation <laughs> fund because it was not in the interest of our own people mm. uh, unions felt that uh, well. It's too bad because that's what the regulations say. It must go into the default fund. Well, we went to court and I won. Good. Awesome. <laughs> well done. Actually, I, um, I think uh, last year, the year before that, uh, Peter Costello actually came out saying uh, the industry super funds have too much power as the default funds. Uh, well, I mean, as the default fund for a lot of people. Uh, and he wanted to resolve the issue by actually making a government super fund as a default fund. Now, a lot of libertarians are quite angry about this because obviously it seems to be, you know, from a guy like Peter Costello, who's, you know, considered a bit of a classical liberal himself, seeming to argue that we should give more power to the government as a way to, you know, combat the unions, whereas others came out saying, look, let's be realistic about this. Uh, it might sound bad on paper, but this is much better than the current status quo where the unions get more power. Uh, what are your thoughts on Costello's proposal? Do you think he's barking mad or do you think he's <laughs> onto something? I, I think the more competition that you have, the better is uh, is anyone that tries to design a fault situation <clears throat> uh, will 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 get into a situation. We've got we've almost got a monopoly situation with the banks uh, yep. simply because there's four four major banks. Why why are there only four major banks? Why aren't there fifty major banks? Uh, it's because uh, somebody in their wisdom. It says oh, there shall be only four. We'll protect them, and yep. uh, and that's it. But you see, they get terribly messy. They get to, when when they feel that they've got a monopoly 
power, they 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 don't behave better. None of us behave better when we think we've got a monopoly over it. It's it's human nature. We've got to throw everything over to competition. So I don't like the idea of a government uh, monopoly default super fund. I think we For should sure. more more competition rather than less. Mm. And right on something that you said now, especially as it as it uh, relates to the banks, we only have four big ones and. Uh, Obviously, that hasn't uh, necessarily worked in our favor to uh, to a huge degree. But something else that uh, that the banks have, arguably, and a lot of other large industries have, is regulation. Now, there's uh, a public perception that as you regulate large industries more, it actually affects the big players first. But what we're seeing now is actually that banks having huge compliance departments, people basically dedicated full-time to just making sure that they're not uh, breaking regulations or breaking laws, the people that are actually affected by that are potential potential future competition. So I, I was wondering if you want to talk about that a little bit, because obviously being libertarians, I don't think that it would be fair if we don't talk about regulations actually handing the market to the big players. I think you've hit the spot. It's called regulation capture. Mm. <laughs> and uh, that's the way the bigger companies always work. I remember this whole uh, thing of, um, uh, uh, not uh, what do they call it, uh, social license to operate, for instance. Uh, that that phrase, that, was, that catchphrase was designed by the three major mining companies of the world who got together and had a little meeting. They called it the Global Mining Initiative. And they designed a set of rules themselves that they then promoted to particularly African countries. And they said to the these other uh, wonderful uh, uh, potential exploration countries, that only the biggest mining companies were able to comply with these rules and regulations because they designed it. So it was designed to keep out the middle range of mining companies to protect the big companies from competition. And and they called it... uh, they called it a social license to operate. Well, there's no such thing. There's no piece of paper that you can say, hey, here's my social license, Robert. <laughs> it's simply regulation capture by the largest companies to prevent new entry into their industry. And we mm. see it with the banks. We see it with the insurance companies. We see it with the, even the medical profession. We see the whole range of things. You get in there, you get uh, occupation licensing, the hairdressers, even babysitting industry is licensed. We get the taxi industry was completely licensed and a complete monopoly until until Uber and and this and the ride sharing industry simply blew them out of the water with new technology that that is has the ability to absolutely fracture all the monopolies <laughs> that we're confronted with. And we'll see it again. We'll see more competition between countries as a result of of this e-commerce that's coming up this the the only the people that provide the services at a reasonable reasonable price will survive this oncoming cyber security sort of a cyber currency type world that we're we're embarking on now i've got e-residency for estonia oh yeah which 
And I am sure that this tiny country of Estonia is about 10 years ahead of Australia in e-commerce in almost mm. every aspect. And we've just sent some of our a team of Mankell scholars to Estonia where they've spent time with the cybersecurity people there and the uh, e-residency people there. And they've come back and they're so excited about what they saw. They, it was like going into a space capsule and seeing the future. Wow. People, wow. people have captured the future. And there's, I think there's over 6,000 Australians already with e-residency for Estonia. And they find wow. it's a wonderful way of doing business around the world. It's certainly not a tax avoidance thing. Estonia's got a simple flat rate of tax. They have no tax deductions. It's a simple way of doing. And, and in e-commerce, that's the way if you are starting a, a, a startup company or a company to trade with the world, the place to do it is from Estonia. Amazing, amazing. Well, that'll be that'll be exciting to see. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit now because I we're reaching the end, but I think it'd be really interesting to hear from you what you think about the new tendencies within libertarianism itself. Because I think maybe for people that don't follow libertarianism too closely, they think that it's just a set of rules, and all those people follow these kind of set of ideologies, and that's what we have. Not currently. What, we, what we're seeing is a lot of libertarian left, libertarian right, people that are reaching more uh, anarcho-capitalist parts of, of libertarianism. Then we also have people that are a little bit closer to, oh, well, let's regulate some things, let's just make sure they're reasonable. And so I just want to see, you know, as these new tendencies kind of pop up, what do you think, what are your critiques of them, and what do you think is the best form of libertarianism? Well, I don't get hung up too much about labels. I... I, mm. uh, I uh, I don't really get involved in the arguments between certain types of libertarians and other certain types of libertarians because I see the enemy as uh, as <laughs> as the the communists slash socialists, the people who want to control our lives. Yep. I am more. I don't. Uh, I don't use a label to describe myself generally, mm. but I I regard a libertarian as anyone who prefers to make decisions about their own lives, they want to make those decisions themselves. They don't want to have those decisions uh, taken from them and left in the hands of strangers, bureaucrats, mm. uh, people whom they don't admire, who they haven't elected. So many decisions in their lives are made by people that we would never normally give a job to. We would never employ <laughs> them true. ourselves. Those, those people are making decisions, personal decisions about our lives and our mm. families and our futures that should be left to us and only us. We can then um, seek advice if we feel we're incapable of making a rational and educated decision about those things. We, as individuals, as responsible individuals, should go and seek advice from people that we admire, people that we trust, not just leave it to the random bureaucrat to step on, step on <laughs> our very lives the way they are at the moment. So I really am happy to travel with anyone that generally describes themselves under such a broad libertarian umbrella. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so... Uh 
Uh, we're seeing a few things happening right now uh, in Hong Kong uh, involving the Chinese government attempting to integrate what has been until now an autonomous territory uh, back into its union under the one-party communist ideology-oriented state. Um, I know that in the forward to your book, you mentioned uh, two pl- other places that are close to your heart be- as being Kalgoorlie and Hong Kong. Um, how do you see the events playing out there and what are your thoughts on the situation? I, I, like a lot of people who've spent time and have lived in Hong Kong, I am fearful that the current events uh, may leave a permanent, may leave some permanent damage and that Hong Kong may, uh, may not continue as, a, uh, as an example of a, of a very free, uh, uh, unregulated market. Uh, that, that was the mark of success in Hong Kong, that uh, people were able to engage in commerce uh, unimpeded uh, and, uh, and it created so many success stories. But now it's, uh, it's uh, come under threat and it's a delicate situation. I, I think we all should be very careful about making profound pronouncements about Hong Kong uh, unless we're actually up there and on, on the spot, because some of the some of the uh, some of the events that are occurring at the moment could just trigger one side or the other to to take things a little bit too far. It's a very peaceful yep. process uh, and a very peaceful protest at the moment. Mm. Nobody's really been hurt or, or nobody's been killed. And uh, that's marked a huge difference with the other youth revolts that have happened in in Europe, uh, in Estonia and in Georgia and some of the other European uh, countries. Um, I didn't didn't mean Estonia, I meant Ukraine. Um, Yep, yep. uh, A hundred young people were murdered by their their own very government. And uh, these were tragic situations. Hong Kong has got a delicate balance at the moment, but it could be triggered one way or the other and create a situation where both sides could be very sorry for what may transpire. So I just yeah. hope they can keep it together. I don't think the uh, the Chinese communist government is listening. Uh, there's uh, no reporting whatsoever in mainland China of the events mm. in Hong Kong. Uh, there's no free press. Uh, so that they're not getting the message out. The rest of the world is far more informed about what's happening in Hong Kong than China, the uh, citizens of China are. So it's, uh, uh, there's certainly no pressure being put on the Chinese government. So I just true. hope they'll, they can learn that the, the light hand of, a light hand of government was, was Hong Kong's success and Hong Kong will be successful as long as it, has that light hand of government not not again being stamped on by a dictatorial uh, big brother yeah no absolutely and i think uh, you know all of us have a hong kong in our minds and in our hearts as uh, as the protests continue and we hope for the best and uh, we'd love to talk to you for another five hours about hong kong but unfortunately we've reached the end of this episode of the podcast we look forward to seeing you uh soon here in the ata offices and i think that's going to be a fantastic event Yep, 2nd of September, uh, Monday night at 6.30pm. There'll be drinks and canapes. Get your tickets online at taxpayers.org.au and be sure to get a signed copy of Ron Manor's new book, 
a lonely libertarian from the man himself. Yeah, thank you, Ron, so much, and we'll see you soon. Talking with you and Satya and Emilio, I look forward to seeing you on Monday week. Likewise, sounds good. Thanks for listening to Adipod, a podcast by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance. If you care to know more about the ATA, visit their website www.taxpayers.org where you'll be able to see their mission statement, their projects, campaigns, objectives, and so much more. Remember, listening to the podcast is free, but creating it isn't. If you'd like to continue to see the Australian Taxpayers Alliance advocacy, please consider becoming a member or donating. You can do this on their website as well. This has been Adipod. We'll see you next time.